Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nahum Siegel Network, NahumSiegel.com. And uh, Phil Goldfeder away this week. Just thought we needed to delve way into some of the stunt goings on in the political world. And the news is just quite uh, momentous. Uh, running it down, Paul Manafort's sentence, Beto O'Rourke getting into the 20. 20- 20 presidential campaign. Uh, you have friction within the Democratic Party, as we've alluded to, with regard to um, still Elon Omar. Also, Tulsi Gabbard gets into it this week with some absurd statements. The president apparently says that the Democratic Party hates Jews and hates Israel. Uh, so Jews are once again a political football. Uh since last week, Ilhan Omar, our betonois of this show last week, went after Barack Obama, strangely enough, uh, and some issues. And so there's just so much going on. Uh, Matt Whitaker, former attorney general, goes before Congress in closed-door session uh, yesterday and seems to have, or at least according to some, seems to have retracted some of this previous testimony to Congress. Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, goes before Congress today on some potentially misleading statements that he may have made to Congress. And Paul Manafort sentenced and then charged with 16 counts of fraud or mortgage fraud in New York on state charges by... New York County, that's Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance, who has now gone after him, which is, of course, in and of itself interesting. And the Democratic field, as I mentioned first, continues to form. Uh, Joe Biden's still not in the race. So, as I said, so much going on in our political world. It's just tough to follow. going to try and touch in a short amount of time, trying to touch as much as possible. I want to get back to where we left off last week and just the divide within the Democratic Party. And, you know, so much of this is about the framing of everything. We know these stories are often reported poorly. I'm not saying the media and the press doesn't try and get it right, but they, they do. They get, I mean, they get it wrong. I mean, there's no, this idea that has been out there and that continues to be perpetrated that, this is a test of whether one can criticize Israel. And this is about criticism of Israel on the part of, you know, that new generation of progressive politicians that now free to criticize Israel. And Bernie Sanders kind of opened that door in the 2016 campaign and brought that into the mainstream. And of course, one of his staffers this week had to also back off a do the dual loyalty comment about Israel. But this is something that the left clearly believes. They clearly believe that Israel is entirely wrong and entirely to blame for the, the lack, for the fact that there isn't peace, for the fact that there's an occupation in uh, Yehudah Shomron. And you know, they don't want to even acknowledge the disengagement from Gaza. They don't want to acknowledge any of this stuff. And it's clearly Israel's fault, and therefore the United States enables it, and the United States needs to pull back because there's no question. You know, you have to ask yourself a a little fundamental question here. 
for them. If Israel would just withdraw from Judea and Samaria, that's it, done. Then what? Then all of a sudden Israel would be okay? I mean, they should be, right? Right? Is that the solution? But that's not, Of course, that's not what the BDS movement calls for. BDS movement doesn't call for a two-state solution. In fact, it was unclear whether Rashida Tlaib even supports a two-state solution. They've asked her. So, in effect, these ideas that they have out there of, well, Israel you know, is to blame. The United States should not be enabling Israel. Anybody who supports Israel is clearly not acting in the best interests of the United States. And therefore, we want to criticize those people, those supporters of Israel, of doing it because they're Jewish first or they're Israel, they believe in Israel first, or it's absurd. And then you have a congresswoman like Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii running for president as well, who is uh, the biggest champion of one Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, brutal dictator who has gassed his own people with chemical weapons. And also a member of the progressive wing, although she's not always so progressive, but strange, you know, these strange positions that they have. And so Tulsi Gabbard has been for a while, and now since she's running for president, I guess it's coming a little more into focus, been an apologist for Assad. And she's actually now been confronted about it. She goes, she's gotten interviews and said, they've asked her and they said, well, do you believe Assad is a war criminal? And she's danced around that. And do you believe, why do you go visit Assad? Do you believe he gassed? Now, she, finally, I think this week she admitted that she believes that Assad gassed his own people. She didn't want to call him a war criminal. And they asked, I think Stephen Colbert asked her, why do you meet with him? Well, we have to meet with our adversaries. I don't have any idea why a backbencher, relatively unknown congresswoman from Hawaii feels that she needs to conduct American foreign policy and she's doing this for the sake of peace and security in the world to meet with somebody as brutal, somebody as responsible for millions, uh, the the suffering of millions of people and the death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that you feel that you need to go meet with this person. What kind of service you're doing for the United States, what kind of service you're doing for your district. But this is kind of the out there policy that some of these Democrats and I look it's not actually in, limited entirely to people like Tulsi Gabbard or Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib this is something that the leadership has to deal with I would put I could put you know some at least one Republican I mentioned this before we mentioned this on the show a couple while back Steve King when he went on a trip to Auschwitz afterward, went ahead and met with some neo or some, I don't know, neo-Nazi, whatever, some far-right groups who are labeled, you know, dangerous types of groups in Europe. And, you know, we had this instance for many years of members of Congress kind of conducting their own foreign policy. Now, they're, they're entitled to kind of go out there and meet with whoever they want. But at the same time, when you want to be you, you want to turn into an apologist for a brutal dictator. You want to turn into a po- an apologist for 
very unsavory characters. And then you come back and you want to single out or some want to go ahead and single out Israel for criticism. Why is Ilan Omar not speaking up for the millions of Syrians who have been brutalized by Assad? Why is she not criticizing Tulsi Gabbard? In fact, as I said, she mentioned she goes after Barack Obama this week for drone strikes. Now, drone strikes are presumably in the best interest of you know killing terrorists and killing enemies of the United States. At least we hope they are. But that's, of course, the point. And you know, the drone program is considered to be a good program because it doesn't risk American troops on the ground and American lives. And if you've read about the drone program that happened in Afghanistan, that we used in Afghanistan extensively, and we've used in Yemen and other places, it's generally considered a success. But you know, some on the left don't like that. There's a whole litany of things that people on the left have to criticize about U.S. foreign policy. But we should kind of take stock of where things are. And a couple things about the whole Ilyan Omar and the whole Democratic lack of resolution condemning her because this resolution that they passed last week was absolutely atrocious. I'm not sure, in my opinion, that 24 Republicans or 23 Republicans should have voted against it. I know some of them. I know why they did it. I know they did it. But I don't understand, even if you want to take a stand on this, nobody's going to remember about exactly why you voted against it, unless they saw the video. And people should be encouraged to post uh, to watch the Lee Zeldin video in particular that he gave speech on the floor of the Congress. But with regard to that is, you know, why are you voting against a resolution condemning hate? Yes, it's a ridiculous resolution. It doesn't necessarily actually give go ahead and do anything. But the point here is that the leadership is unable to grapple with a couple of things. I mean, number one, it's the fact that there are new members and they have their own followings and they're not unknown and they have their own celebrity. Much that used to take years and years and years of work and seniority in Congress to accomplish. And they can get attention just by virtue of social media and by virtue and they can you know get on TV. And that used to never happen. So now they have this ability to do that. And they also have very, I think, very unschooled or ill-informed views of the world in certain issues, uh, as we see by Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, this is just uh, how far out there can you be to, be to be a supporter of Bashar Assad? And, you know, of course, Anilian Omar makes, you know, three, four, five anti-Semitic statements. I mean, let's just wait there for a second. Now, we talked about it this week. Tulsi Ilyan Omar was kind of said, oh, she's criticizing Israel. She's criticizing U.S. foreign policy. She did not criticize U.S. foreign policy. She did not talk about the occupation. She did not talk about the fact that, uh, it, you know, the conditions on the ground in the territories. What she did talk about is Americans and how Americans are misled or 
bribed essentially into believing or to to adopting a pro-Israel foreign policy, which is not in the best interest of America. That is the problem. She's talking about American politics. And, you know, it's just to say, uh, well, I mean, did was that dual loyalty called into question by Italian-Americans during World War II or Irish-Americans when it came to the IRA? Yeah, it was, and it was wrong. And it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. And it's offensive. And it's the kind of thing that a member of Congress needs to be more responsible. And yeah, we could say, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't know. She does. She's just a freshman. She doesn't know anything. You got to give her time to learn. Come on. I was heartened by the fact that the New York Times went into her district and found both Jews and others, but particularly the Somalis. The Somali community seems to not like this idea of, or at least some of the Somali, I don't want to quote everybody because as indicative, but the New York Times goes in there and they find Somalis who say, this is not, we're not interested in this type of, we don't want the infamy coming along with this. Just do your job. You don't have to tar our whole community with this. That's a little bit of the backstory that people aren't getting. But the flip side of the New York Times is they do this ridiculously poorly reported APAC article about some, you know, APAC essentially going after some of these freshmen out there. And they have a guy from Florida. Name escapes me the second. I'm not even going to bother to look it up. Who isn't even an APAC activist anymore. And they take a picture of him wearing tefillin and they put that in the paper. I don't even know what the point of that is. First of all, I'm sure. I guess he wanted. He was okay with being having where it's filling, but I, I don't. I I just don't know. But the guy, your 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 whole predicate of the article is about APAC, and the article wasn't even didn't even interview anybody from APAC. And this whole APAC thing is totally overblown, but I would say, you know, it's a good opportunity for people to plug the policy conference coming up in two weeks in D.C., probably the largest gathering of pro-Israel uh, Americans anywhere, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. If you've never been, it's an experience, an incredible experience, I would say, even if you're not, for whatever reason, for, you know, for whatever reason, even if, let's say, APAC is too far right for you, or, in fact, APAC is too far left for you, you should still go, because having the experience of, number one, being in D.C. and under, and getting involved in the process is really, really important. But having said that, they're going to have, I think, a, a banner year this year, um, especially after these comments. People are going to be rushing to be there. Now, on the flip side, the president goes off and says, based on this thing, it says that Democrats are anti-Israel, they're anti-Jewish. I know we don't always, shouldn't always take the president literally, and, you know, he tends to say these things. But then before a private crowd has been reported in a Mar-a-Lago at a fundraiser, he says that Democrats hate Jews. I know that there's a wishful thinking out there on a lot of Jewish Republicans like myself that somehow that the American Jewish community is going to wake up and realize that the Republican Party is more in tune with their values and their like. I would say the current administration doesn't make it easy on all fronts, but no Republican administration makes it entirely easy on that front. But I will tell you, from my point of view, the Democratic Party certainly is right now is not a home for pro-Israel 
uh, Jews. But that does not mean that the Democrats hate Jews. In fact, I would say, you know, the, the Democratic Party has been utterly, incredibly, historically hospitable to the Jewish community in a way that is we should be very proud of and we should be very happy with as Americans. As Americans, we should be happy, we should be pleased that Jewish politicians have achieved tremendous success, mostly through the aegis of the Democratic Party. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem. I don't have to agree with everybody 100%. And yes, a guy like Chuck Schumer, I don't agree with him on a lot of things. But the fact is that there are, when it comes down to it, there are many Jewish Democrats, and they might be the very liberal stripe, who are very proud Jews and are very proud, when it comes down to it, to identify and protect the Jewish people on many different issues. And I think that's important. And the president retweeted this Jexodus site. I know some of the people behind it. Um, I'm not sure that their spokeswoman is the right person, at least looking at the other stuff on the internet about her, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it's a clever little thing. And, you know, comes out of CPAC. I think it was announced there. Let's see. I don't know. I don't I don't see it. I personally don't see it. I don't see younger, progressive, non-Orthodox Americans, American Jews, gravitating towards the Republican Party. Just don't see that happening, unfortunately, because most of them are very, very progressive. And most of them are definitely gravitating to an anti-Trump, anti-Republican stance and are very turned off by what's going on in the Republican Party, particularly the anti-immigrant and the particularly the nationalism and the white nationalism. And a way of doing that is not to call yourself a nationalist, you know, as the president has done. <clears throat> That's a surefire way to turn off Jews. So as I mentioned, Beto O'Rourke getting into the Democratic primary field this is just going to be one incredible... I mean, there could be up to 20 candidates, as we mentioned. Joe Biden is still biding his time. But the amazing thing is, Beto O'Rourke is this political phenomenon. He ran statewide in Texas and lost. Here, right? He didn't win. But yet, because of his fund incredible ability to fundraise, because of his persona, because I think of his cool factor, I don't know what else there is to it, he has become this phenomenon on the... Democrat in the Democratic Party. We'll have to see. I mean, there's Joaquin Castro, who's also from Texas. Who knows where where the where this goes? I mean, the polling obviously has Biden and Sanders out there. I mean, I gotta wonder about Bernie Sanders whether it's gonna be he's gonna be able to hold the same numbers that he did last time around. I mean, that was really a two way race essentially. This is gonna be very different. And <coughs> excuse me. And he is, of course. Older, as is Joe Biden. So we have to see about the command of the field and see what happens as far as how that goes. But the fact that he's getting in, coming off a loss, tells you a lot about American politics and where people... It kind of goes back to what we talked about with regard to the freshmen, just discussed with regard to the freshmen out there in the party how they're able to get attention, people are able to get attention way outside of the traditional lanes through social media, through their ability to connect directly with the voters, not through traditional media, not through that, all the 
gatekeeper type medium that existed in the past, but actually to go and directly to the people. And if you have that channel and you have that ability, immediately you can catapult to ahead to the front of the line. Two things I want to comment on before we get done today. And uh, so you can see I have a little bit of a voice and uh, a cough. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, cut it short. But with regard to Paul Manafort, Paul Manafort gets sentenced, gets another four years in prison. I think everybody thought the first sentence was absolutely was absolutely crazy that he got so far below the minimum. I mean, look, I, I feel bad for the guy in, in a way, but he, he did admit to stealing $6 million of our taxpayer money and not paying. Um, terrible. I really, and we represented a lot of reprehensible people over the years. Uh, but that's not the case. I mean, the, the real thing is just it's his, what seems to be his contempt for the law. But we'll leave that aside for a second. What is really amazing is that his lawyer goes out there to the cameras after he's done and after the judge had already criticized him or criticized them for in their court papers talking about Russian collusion and says it's a non sequitur. It's not relevant to this case. This case is not about Russian collusion. He wasn't on trial for Russian collusion. He was on trial for lying and not registering as a foreign agent, having nothing to do with Russia. I mean, of course, this probably all stems from the Russian investigation, but okay. And his lawyer goes out there and says, the judge has ruled in two cases there is no collusion. And the funny, crazy thing is what happened. I watched this on TV. People started heckling him. That's not what he said. They started yelling. I don't know if they were protesters. They're just people in the court. I mean, it's quite remarkable that you go out to the cameras and you say something that is so not grounded in fact. That's another word for an absolute lie, a red-faced lie, a bald-faced lie. And he did that, and he says, because it's like me getting a parking ticket and pleading guilty to a parking ticket and getting sentenced and then saying... But there was no collusion in my parking ticket. And I told the go before the judge, and I say, I'm guilty, but I did not collude. And the judge says, you're right, you did not collude. I'm giving you a $50 fine. Great, and I can walk out there and say the judge didn't find any evidence of collusion. Of course, because that's not nothing to do with the case. Now, obviously, he's playing to the idea that it might be pardoned, and that's important to the president. But this is just absurd. I mean, the, the, the level of obfuscation is just absurd. And we should say, come on. Let's just, can't we all have a common reality? Can't we all have a common frame of reference? Can't we all have this idea that we agree on facts, the things that actually happen, that we can watch on video and say this actually happened? But no, we seem to live in a world right now where we can't even agree on the things that happen, or at least there are those that want to change the reality of what actually happened. And I guess if you repeat it enough times, that actually can happen. And of course, Paul Manafort was then greeted with the gift from Cy Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney, of 16 counts of fraud. State charges, which he could not be pardoned for if he was convicted. I mean, that could be a problem because, you know, double jeopardy laws, you know, trying people for the same thing. And it seems that he was charged in federal court for some of these crimes already. But it's unclear as to how, as to where we go. Uh, you know, if you keep in mind, Cy Vance, years ago, a couple years ago, dropped a case involving the Trump Soho Hotel with regard to similar charges to what Paul Manafort uh, is facing. 
And last but not least, just the guy to talk about it, the 737 crash and the grounding of the 737s, President made a remarkable comment. Uh, you know, in a world where everybody would say that we need to invest more in technology, we need to update our air traffic control systems, we need to go to GPS tracking in our transportation systems and particularly in airlines. You know, the president's response to this was, well, there's too much technology on the planes, the pilots don't know how to fly anymore, etc. We have to, you know, it's almost this idea that, and you know, it's like make America great again if we go back to the 1950s. Let's do it the same way. Let's go back to the 1970s. Let's take our, everything back because America was greater in a time before all this technological change. And there are people who believe that. That is definitely a thing. People do feel out there, and he's tapping into an anxiety about the fact that our world has become too technological, too remote, and not connect and too connected in a sense that it has removed whatever sense of I'm not sure what the sense is exactly, but for a lot of people, people don't like that. And you see, it's very clever how the president does that. Uh, can you know that taps into that anxiety with regard to technology? Does it in very subtle ways? I think it's bad policy if that's going to be the policy of the United States. Let's go back to paper and pencil when we track. Um, and we'll go back to, you know, simple radar. I mean, clearly, things like planes and airplanes and transportation and cars and the like are things we want to invest more technology in. I think technology has only been beneficial for everyday lives in that regard. But there are people out there who have a tremendous anxiety about it. And he does tap into it in very subtle ways. And I think it's interesting how he... How, how how he does that. The man, for everything that goes on, and I know these little sound bites about hating Jews and a lot of people out there will cringe about that. He has this ability to kind of pick up on on politically on these little things, and he does it very cleverly and very smartly, and do not dismiss the political genius of President Trump and his... I would say chaos producing politics. So I will close with this today. There will be a vote or there should be a vote that will potentially uh, get the first Democratic, uh, first, I'm sorry, first veto of the Trump presidency. Uh, they're going to vote in the emergency for the wall. Five Republicans are already committed to voting against. They're saying there could be as many as 10 to voting for, sorry, to, to rescind the president's national emergency. We will see. It's going to be very interesting. Um, is, it, is it a rebuke from the party? I don't know. Hard to know exactly how this will play out and who you know what the players will be, but some of the president's stalwart supporters, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, are going to go ahead and vote for it because of constitutional grounds. Um, personally, I think that uh, this idea of an emergency is wrong. It's usurping the power of Congress, which the Constitution explicitly gives, the power of appropriating funds, but we don't live in a political reality of right and wrong anymore. We live in a period of relativism and uh, lack of common truth, I'll put it that way. So that's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.